Attention, this is not legal advice. If you are experiencing a legal emergency, contact an attorney or your local public defender's office. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Gin and Justice. So this week's guest, his name's Don Dempsey. He's a criminal defense attorney in Central Florida, and he is here to talk about what we call sensibility in the system. And I think really what we kind of cover in the episode is practices in the criminal justice system that would just make sense. I know we have a big problem in this country with mass incarceration, so I think a lot of the policies that he talks about and puts forth he would make sense in the system and would help reduce that. And he's just an interesting dude. He is. It's funny because I I know Don from prior and we always used to laugh at each other because we were very opposite politically, Mm -hmm. um, very opposite politically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, we, you know, would always poke fun at each other. But I think it just goes to show that when it comes to criminal justice reform, it's not a partisan issue and it's I, an everybody issue. Right, because it's human beings you're dealing with here, so it's really not a partisan issue. And, and again, the things that he talks about really just make sense. So we are going to keep our intro short because the interview is a little long. But interesting. Very so. good. <laughs> good All right, enjoy, guys. We are here with Don Dempsey. He's a very well-known criminal defense attorney in Florida here, and we're excited that he took time out of his day to talk to us. Uh, so, Don, thank you for being here today. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate yeah. you having me. Or I guess we're here. <laughs> yes. All right. So Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Well, I'm old. I'm, uh, <laughs> I've been doing this 31 years, uh, both as a prosecutor and a defense attorney, and uh, predominantly as a defense attorney, but I've done. I've been here in Volusia County my entire career. And, um, you know, I, that's basically it. I got a wife who's a, a county judge here. I've got three kids, and uh, well, that's about well, it. That gives you a very unique perspective on how things go down in the system. Yes, I gotta <laughs> watch what I say around my wife. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, is it weird? No, no, just, no. Uh, you know, I'm very libertarian at heart. Um, I grew up as a. Uh, I worked for Ronald Reagan, and. Uh, like the oh, Ronald Reagan? The, well, yeah, for his campaign and Jack Kemp. All right. And, uh, but um, I've grown to like Ron Paul. I call myself a Ron Paul Republican. And, uh, <laughs> okay. I'm, I, like I said, I very very much so lean libertarian when it comes to criminal justice. And over the 31 years that I've been doing this, I've just become more and more bitter towards the system. I'm a big constitutionalist. I was raised in southwestern PA. I was born here, but grew up in southwestern PA since the age of two. And I was fortunate enough that our uh, schooling system up there really j- just jammed George Washington down our throat and our forefathers. I mean, every history class we predominantly studied the revolution and stuff like that. If you look from my lobby, I got all George Washington stuff. I fly the Betsy Ross flag out in front of my office. It's raining today, it's not. But, um, but anyway, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big constitutionalist and a libertarian. And uh, one of my biggest desires, I guess, in the system is to see change. And I hate to even say reform. Because 
we don't need any more reform. We need to just go back to the way it was, you know, before the '80s. You know, mm -hmm. when the war on drugs started say, back in 19. Exactly. That <laughs> yeah. was the biggest, and I, I loved President Reagan. Worked hard for him, but it was really under his administration that the war on drugs and all this minimum sentencing guidelines and minimum mandatories and all that stuff really exploded. And right. it's this tough on crime rhetoric right. that I think has just been played out. And it's just, it's, it's led to us being the most incarcerated country in the world. And we're the most, and our state's even higher than that, Florida. Right. Yeah. So it, it, it needs to change. Now, we talked a little bit on prior episodes about um, mandatory minimums, and we kind of went over what those were. Um, as a defense attorney, what do, you, what, do you, what, what do you see as the issue with mandatory minimums? Even more than a defense attorney, just as a person who loves our Constitution, um, I mean, I, I have so much respect for our forefathers and what they went through. I didn't sleep at Valley Forge. I didn't cross the Delaware and icy rivers. You know, I didn't risk my life and my, all my liberty and stuff to fight the biggest army in the world to create this country. And then those same people created our Constitution. I mean, they really have a lot of stake in the Constitution. So I think it's, it's a, it spits in their face to start messing with the Constitution and changing the checks and balances. I mean, our forefathers were very wise people. And when they put in the checks and balances uh, you know, the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government. I mean, there's a reason for that. We don't want one branch of government to have too much power. Right. And minimum mandatories have basically stripped the judicial branch of government away from all of their discretion and given it all to the executive branch, the state attorney. Right. And, and that's what offends me. I think it's terrible. We have 43 elected judges in our circuit. We have one elected state attorney. And for some reason, the legislature has determined that through minimum mandatories, that somehow the judges, my wife being one of them, are incompetent to make a wise and, and sensible sentencing decision. And they have to impose these minimum sentences in every fact situation. One size fits all justice. And yet the state attorney, there's only one elected state attorney, only he has the discretion to waive minimum mandatories. And when right. one person has all the power, they're called a king. And we <laughs> broke away from England a couple hundred years ago right. to get away from kings, and now we've gone full circle when we're now back to the state attorney being the king, and only he can waive minimum mandatories than any other of the judges in our circuit. And it just offends me, because no two cases are the same. Right. You know? And you know, the old hypothetical, was it illegal to steal a, bread, a loaf of bread to feed your family? Okay, well, that's different than stealing a loaf of bread just because you're a thief. But why would the legislature have this unique ability to foresee all these crimes and say, if you do this, then you must get that as a sentence? Because no two fact situations are the same. Right. And so we elect judges who have experience. If you think a judge is too soft on crime, you vote them out of office. But you don't create laws from Tallahassee to handcuff judges and force them to do something that they otherwise wouldn't have done. Right. And it's it's terrible that they do that. And you know they these minimum mandatories. Um, I mean, they're just wrong for so many reasons. That's that's probably my biggest complaint about them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think too. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that. Um, 
when somebody is being sentenced, whether they're because they've been convicted at trial or because they've entered a plea, um, typically they have a sentencing hearing. And at that sentencing hearing, the judge would normally take into account all of these different factors in making that decision. And so, you know, when, when there's mandatory minimums, it becomes kind of a pointless procedure at that point because they're being told what to sentence them to. Yeah, and it's, it's just, um, and it puts all the power in the state attorney's hands. And if your client is dead in the water, they've confessed, they've done something, you know, they shouldn't have done, but it's their first offense, and maybe there's reasons why they did it. Um, maybe not a legal defense, but it's a mitigator, right. you know, stealing bread to mm-hmm. feed your family. Mm-hmm. But um, why is it that only the state attorney is eligible? able to show compassion and mercy on people and the judges can. If you remember back in the day, in these old movies, you know, your client commits something, judge, I throw myself on the mercy of the court. Judge, you know, you know, the attorney gets up and says, my client's a good man, he works, he provides for a family, he's military, all this stuff. We throw ourselves on the mercy of the court. That doesn't happen anymore. That's gone. That's all been stripped by our legislature because they're saying judges are too incompetent to make a wise decision. So now only the state attorney can show mercy. There's no more throwing yourself on the mercy of the court. What offends me is, you know, we all say we don't want legislators, or we don't like judges who legislate from the bench. Every election for judgeships, you always hear these judges saying, well, I won't legislate from the bench. I'll follow the law. So nobody likes judges who legislate from the bench. But yet we got legislators who are judging from the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to drive in their own lane that our forefathers intended. The legislative branch determines what's a crime, what isn't, and the maximum sentences or whatever. The executive branch determines who we're going to prosecute, who we think violated those laws. And then the judges, the jury actually, it's supposed to be a jury function to determine guilt or innocence. Juries were not supposed to have such a limited function like they do now. There's very few jury trials because a minimum mandatory scare people away from trials. But the original intent was to have juries determine the facts and then the judges would determine the sentence. Right. But now the legislature has said, no, you know, judges, we just can't trust you to do the sentences, so we're going to shift all your former power over to the executive branch, which is wrong. Right. And it's just, um, yeah, and it happens, it's, it's going up to capital cases all the way down to even county court judges now. If it's a domestic violence case, there's any evidence of injury, it's 10 days minimum mandatory. I know we got the rioting law that came out where there was a minimum mandatory jail sentence if you protest or something like that. So wild. Yeah, I mean, oh, it, did that go through? Well, I don't know if it went through, but I know it was proposed. And I, yeah. I, you know, it's just anything with a minimum mandatory sounds great at re-election time, you know, <laughs> for uh, for politics. But when it plays out in the real world, right. it, it's it's terrible because it, it just has a chilling effect on people going to a jury, and, and that kind of gets me into jury nullification. I don't. They used to actually hand out the leaflets in front of the courthouse back in the day. I don't know if you remember them or not, but back in the 1900s when I started doing this stuff, <laughs> 1990, um, there used to be people who would hand out literature in front of the courthouse on jury day. I'll never forget that. And I remember reading some of their literature and reading about it and uh, researching it. And they basically believed that a jury should have the ability to nullify um, or to be able to acquit somebody just because they disagree with the law. Which is wonderful because that's another check and balance that our forefathers put in. That was used significantly back in the slave trade days, okay, with runaway slaves in the Underground Railroad. Um, there were in the South, it was a felony to aid and abet a runaway slave to go to the North. 
and the defense attorneys back in that day would be able to argue. The, the people could be caught red-handed. You could be a, a white family and you're helping runaway slaves and you get caught and there's all kinds of witnesses against you. So you're sitting there facing trial and um, you're looking to get convicted and basically you really have no defense. But the defense was allowed to argue back then that if you disagree with slavery and you believe slavery is immoral and wrong, then you can find the defendant not guilty just because you disagree with slavery. And a lot of people were acquitted for that very reason. They were guilty of sin, but the, the jurors, fortunately for the defense, were morally against slavery, and they acquitted them. Right. And so, and you go to modern day. I mean, yeah, now it's they ask right out in jury selection, if you, can you find someone guilty even if you disagree with the law? I'm sure you've had this. I mean, I've had many a, a, a four dyers where we pick juries, we interviewed potential jurors, and the prosecutor will get up and say, if the law says it's illegal for the defense, the defendant to hold a blue pen in his left hand, and we prove that the defendant was holding a blue pen in his left hand, will you be able to find him guilty whether you agree with the law or not? And I'm thinking, where, where have we come as a country to where a juror could be convinced to convict somebody and possibly imprison them over holding a blue pen in their left hand. The jurors should be told, no, if you disagree with the law as it applies to this case, then you should be able to find them not guilty because the laws should not be applied to the facts of this case. I also feel like jurors should know what the person is looking at. Like, that's always bothered me. Well, there's a statute right on point that says they're supposed to be told. Oh, really? Yeah. It's huh. 91810. In fact, here, I'll... Yeah. yeah, there's a statute of point that those... He's pulling out a giant box of case law. <laughs> <laughs> One of my plans for the restructuring of society. <laughs> but there is a, uh, it's 9, 91810 or 91018. Hold on, let me, let me get in my, my hymnal here. <laughs> I think it's 91018. It says, uh, yeah, and we don't, and they won't go along with it. It's uh, 91810. Yeah, charge to a jury. At the conclusion of argument, this is 918.10. At the conclusion of argument of counsel, the court shall charge the jury. The charge shall be only on the law and the case and must include the penalty for the offense for which the accused is being charged. Wow. Black and white. Wow, wow. And yet they still won't do it. Wow. And. Yes, because I agree. You know, people might think, well, okay, like in these, um, I mean, there's a lot of cases, uh, I mean, there's hypotheticals. Let's I'll give you a hypothetical. You get caught with, I think it's, well, I'll give you another hypothetical. A, a wife catches a husband cheating and goes to the, um, she, he's cheating with the best friend, let's say, and he, she catches him in the act at the best friend's house, goes in and, and slaps the best friend. I mean, what do you think should happen to that person? I mean, most people would think, okay, that's not a big deal. She slapped her husband in her, for cheating on her. Right, burglary yeah, battery. It's a burglary battery. It's a light <laughs> felony. Life minimum, felony. Minimum mandatory, or sentencing guideline minimum, three, three and a half years. Wow. You know, and I've even talked to some representatives, uh, legislators, senators and uh, representatives, and I've presented them with that scenario. And I asked them, what do you think should happen? And they're like, well, probably nothing. You're probably upset because, you know, she was arrested. And I said, yeah, I am I'm upset that she was arrested. But do you know what you and your band of merry men up there in Tallahassee 
are saying should happen to this person who just slapped her husband because she caught him in bed with her best friend. It was at the best friend's house. Well, enough probation at the most. And I said, well, no, you're, you guys want three years prison. Right. So you guys create these one-size-fits-all laws. Right. Now the judge's hands down here are tied, and there's no two facts, situations the same. I mean, if I'm wearing a ski mask and I break through your window and I come in and I steal from you, yeah, that's prison. <laughs> and if I beat you up you know, while you're sleeping, I mean, that's prison. Right. But not in that scenario, but yet this one-size-fits-all justice seems to be you know, morphed into... And chances are murder. she's going to take the minimum mandatory because she's scared something else. Yeah, so what the state right. does is they dangle this carrot. Okay, you know, you admitted it to the police officer, you did it, and they got all these witnesses, and so we're going to dangle probation, and you either take the probation or go to trial, and you're going to get three years, and the judge will have no say-so, you know, yeah. unless there's one of the limited, very limited exceptions, which are right. like Bigfoot sightings anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Sure doesn't feel like justice. That's for sure. We uh, had a discussion on one of our prior episodes about the weights of different drugs that trigger mandatory minimums. And uh, actually our first guest, was, she went to prison for trafficking. She had a prescription pill bottle that was not hers. But because they go on the weight, she was charged with trafficking. It was all for personal use. Yep. Um, and she was charged with trafficking. And she never been in trouble before. Um, besides maybe a driving on a suspended license, and uh, she went to prison for three years, so. And it's, you know, what's funny is, it's not sad actually, is it, is it Xanax? It's one of them, if you have, I just, I, I talked about it in my campaign, I can't remember which one it was, but it was like 11 pills, it's such an innocuous amount, and it's a three-year minimum prison sentence so for crazy. like very small amounts. So right. people might get these prescriptions and then, their prescriptions expire. You know, I've, I've been prescribed pain pills. I've had several surgeries on my legs over the years. You get prescribed pain pills. I don't take pain pills that much, but then the ex prescription expires. And a couple of three years later, they're still sitting in your cabinet, but now mm -hmm. it's in illegal possession because your prescription expired. Right. One so time I picked my aunt up from the airport and she had a headache. She bust out this little like box of pills, like random pills. I was like, that's a crime. You can't be yeah. doing that. Yeah. <laughs> In the days of the week, right? Sunday through Saturday, Sunday. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I probably the biggest change in my life when I was working for you know I worked for Reagan, President Reagan, and I uh, worked for Jack Kemp in '88. And that was the first time I ever heard Ron Paul speak was in '88 because he ran for president on the Libertarian ticket, and Jack Kemp was the big force behind the Kemp Roth Tax Reform Act of '81, which kind of pulled this country. He's a really wise guy as far as economics, and I liked him a lot. But I'd always listen to this guy, Ron Paul, who I'd never heard of before. And he starts talking about some pretty drastic stuff and um, legalizing drugs. You know, that's the libertarian platform. And then William F. Buckley, I don't know if you know who that is or was. He passed away a few years back. But he was like a, a big con a conservative um, theorist, I guess. or He had, a, he had a, a talk show called Firing Line. It's kind of like the Rush Limbaugh of the 70s and the 80s. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Um, Big conservative, uh, well-spoken, he had an English accent, um, he was very well-known and thought of on, on the conservative side, but he was always pushing for the legalization of drugs. And when he came to our law school, he was talking about legalizing drugs, he filled the auditorium. And, um, and at first I'm thinking, okay, I don't know if I agree with this or not, but then well, he laid it out and he said, you know, if you want to get rid of drug crimes, legalize drugs. You know, right. And then he went into his rationale behind it, and it, it really makes sense. 
if a person has uh, a Loratab or an oxycodone addiction, on the black market on the street, it's like $25 a pill. So if you have a six pill a day habit, that's gonna cost you $150 a day or about $1,000 a week drug habit you're gonna have. Now, your average person who works at McDonald's or Walmart only makes 500 a week, let's say. So how can they support a $1,000 a week drug habit when they're only making $500 a week at their job? Well, they either steal, rob, right. mm -hmm. or they prostitute themselves, right. or they become drug dealers themselves right. Okay, mm -hmm. to support their habit. If you legalize the drugs, I don't know if you ever had to buy prescription pain pills before, but they're usually a dollar a pill. Mm -hmm. Okay, Very cheap when it's legalized and you have a script and you go to CVS. Right. Well, now that six pill a day habit is no longer $150 a day. Now it's $6 a day. And so that $1,000 a week drug habit now becomes a $40, $42 a week drug habit. Well, now the person who works at McDonald's and Walmart can afford a $42 a week drug habit. So they don't have to go out and rob and steal and prostitute mm -hmm. themselves and become drug dealers to support their habit. And he said, you need to spend all that money we spend, all the millions and millions of dollars we spend on these drug cases could be used to rehabilitate treatment. them, treatment, mm -hmm. get them better. And, right. and that was his position back in the late 80s. Right. And he was already talking back then in the late 80s that we've lost the war on drugs. I think I saw him in 88 or 89 in my law school. And now we're, you know, 30, 40 years later since the war on drugs started, and <laughs> you can still go down and get drugs anytime you want it. I mean, it's not like we've won the war on drugs. Right. So, you know. And that's economics, too. If there's a demand, there's always going to be a supply one way or another. Right. So until you start putting in treatment programs and, and putting money into that, you're, in economics, you can never control the supply side without controlling the demand side. So, um, and it's the same way with It just seems know, like drugs. such common sense. Like, I don't know. It, <laughs> what it, do we do it? <laughs> it blows me away. I know, I, you know, as you may or may not, I, mean, I ran for state attorney this Yeah, I want to talk time. to you about that. <laughs> and uh, one, of the, one of the things I found in, in running is, um, you know, we have a drug unit, a specialized drug unit here in the circuit but we don't have an economic crimes unit. We don't have a white collar crime unit. And see, and to me, I've always believed that drugs are a victimless, nonviolent offense. And you know, it's kind of like if a tree falls in the forest, you don't hear a noise, does it make a noise? I've always equated that with, I mean, if a crime is committed, you always imagine a crime, a victim. How can you have a crime without a victim? So then when you have somebody who is in possession of an eight ball of cocaine, who's the victim? Right, I mean, right. why do I care if somebody's drinking a fifth of tequila in their living room every night or doing an ounce of cocaine off their coffee table every night? Why do I care? Why does the government care, more importantly? Um, because to me, when you, it's just legislative morality. You know, the government shouldn't legislate morality. You can't make people better people through laws. You know, that never works. And so when you try and create these laws to make people better people, it just isn't going to work. That same mm -hmm. fallacy was tried through the prohibition back in you know the 20s and 30s, and then we just had drug runners, bootleggers like Al Capone and all those guys. Well, when they repealed prohibition, you know, we don't have a problem with bootleggers anymore. Right. And uh, it, it, because it's just, it's legal now, and I think the same thing would happen if they just went ahead and legalized all drugs, then... Um, we wouldn't have drug dealers and right. we wouldn't mm -hmm. have drug-related offenses. Right. Or yeah. drug addicts packing the prisons. Exactly. Well, that's 
<laughs> we had, I, I looked this up on the FDLE website, and we have, uh, I think in 18, 2018, I think we had 7,500 drug cases prosecuted in this circuit, and yet we only had, I believe it was seven embezzlement cases. Wow. Okay. The next year we had 6,500 in 2019. We had 6,500 drug cases prosecuted, and I think we had eight embezzlement cases. So we're putting more emphasis on these victimless, nonviolent offenses right. than white collar crime, where people were actually being victimized. Mm -hmm. But you know, I mean, as, as you may have experienced, I mean, it seems all too often that they'll say, "Well, that's a white, you know, that's an it's civil in nature." You know, we don't get involved in that. So one business partner steals from another business partner, or somebody is taking care of an elderly person and they take their credit card and start charging stuff on the elderly person's credit card or stealing from that elderly person or, you know, employees stealing from employers. That stuff gets um, pushed away way too often. And I think that number is kind of really um, representative of where our criminal justice system is focusing. I mean, you got 7,500 drug cases and seven embezzlement cases yes. in a year. You that's telling. That's, that tells you right there. They're not. They don't even care about the white collar crime or the economic crime. It's just. I mean, I guess drugs and drug dealers and videos of police, you know, blowing into houses with flash pots and you know, that's very dramatic and makes good theater. But I don't think that's what really. When you sit back and look at the big picture, that's not what criminal justice is about. Right. Do you find that through your years of practice, there's been an increasing militarization of techniques of the of the police and the way they're the way the laws are enforced and the way that they're enforced with SWAT teams, things of that nature, their weapons? No, they're. I mean, they're actually the cops themselves. I, I'm friends with most of the law enforcement guys around here. We've got a good group of deputies and local policemen. I think the videos have weeded out some of the bad ones. So I'm glad we do have videotaping going on now. And I, you know, I wish it was. I mean, I, there sometimes videos aren't working. Sometimes you wonder if it's convenient or not that they're not working at certain times. Um, but I mean, for the most part, most law enforcement officers I know are really good guys. I just think. The problem with the system now is there's too much micromanaging. I mean, there's there's too many policies in place. I don't think the prosecutors, the assistants, are given enough discretion to do what they feel is right. They have to always run it by a supervisor. And I mean, I think a lot of deputies and uh, police officers are uh, basically under a lot of pressure. If not actual policy pressure, then the other pressure of just not doing anything. I think it's always more safe as a police officer to make an arrest, especially like in a domestic violence case. They always say, well, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to come back to a murder scene. So you know, if the cops are called, we're going to arrest somebody to, well, that's fine. I guess that's a, but you, you can't throw away people's constitutional rights and their presumptions of innocence just because one in a hundred thousand may actually go back and hurt that person if you don't arrest them. But it, to me, it's arrogant, it's vain to think that law enforcement will ever stop domestic violence. I mean, it's been going on since Cain and Abel. You know, if dogs bark, cats meow, couples fight, and that's what's gonna happen. Just make arresting everybody every time there's a fight, and then doing these almost, it seems like uniform requirements that you have to do the 26 weeks. You have to do, you know, they can't just drop the charge when the alleged victim wants it dropped. They have to get something out of the case. I mean, that has a lot more damaging effects on people's careers. Um, 
uh, just overall because of these blanket policies that seem to be coming out more and more. You know, I don't think deputies can say, go walk it off, go stay at a friend's house anymore. They pull you over for a DUI. It's questionable. Sometimes I think back in the old days, they'd say, oh, give me your keys and just come get them tomorrow. Go call a cab and have somebody or have somebody pick you up. Mm-hmm. They don't have that discretion anymore. And I think if they did exercise whatever discretion they had, I think they're very scared to exercise it because if something did happen, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's right. they're scared. I feel like a lot of law enforcement nowadays, too, is very young. They start right. very young and they're impressionable. And I mean, you see law enforcement officers that are 18, 19, 20 years old, so. And, and, they're, and they're scared for their jobs. Yeah, and I, I yeah, it, it's a shame because I don't know if they teach them enough about constitutional protections. I do think there's a lot of gung-ho cops. My grandfather, you know, that's him on the wall right there. He was a he was in the military and he was an MP in the military and he was law enforcement afterwards. You he, look like him. Oh, do I really? Well, that's a call. <laughs> I love my path. But he always said there's two types of people in the military, those who are there to serve their country and those who are there to kill people. Mm-hmm. And he said it's the same way in law enforcement. He said there's those who are there to do a good, honorable job and help society and all that, then there's those who are there to get even with society for their mm-hmm. childhood. And those are the ones that, you know, you really got to right. hope and pray that yeah. those aren't the ones that come in through the law enforcement academies mm-hmm. and then get on with the PDs and then all of a sudden they're just bullies with badges. Right, right. I don't see many of them. I do, I have seen them in the last 31 years, but mm-hmm. they're, fortunately they're not as bad, especially with the video. I tell you, these videos nowadays. It's like the best thing that's ever happened. I, I think it's awesome yeah. because I've had. It's good for everybody involved. Yeah, we, we've caught, I mean, there's been some where they've plainly lied, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, but for the video, an innocent person would have been convicted, you know, right. and that's not what we want. Right, yeah, exactly. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, running for state attorney. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I lost, let me start with that. Are you, are you going to run again, though? I'm a loser. Um, yes, probably. Yeah, that's. Uh, Why do you want to do that? Because things still haven't changed. It's just, it's statewide. It's mm-hmm. actually not even statewide, it's nationwide. Right. You know, our country jails more people per capita than any other country in the world. And our state, it used to be when I worked for Reagan, uh, well, this was actually when I was high school, 1980, the war on drugs really kind of mm-hmm. kicked off. And um, that was basically we would jail about 100 people per 100,000 in this country. And uh, that went from 100 per 100,000 in 1980 to 700 per 100,000 currently. So we've gone up sevenfold in the last 40 years. Yeah. Florida is 833 per 100,000. We're even more than the U.S., which is the highest country in the world of countries. We're actually more than these other countries. So either Floridians are the worst people on the face of the <laughs> earth or the system's clearly broken, and it's obviously broken. And it's and there's the private prison issue that I think needs to be addressed. I mean... It, I'm, I'm a big capitalist, God-fearing, conservative, Republican, but... Don't stop listening to us now. <laughs> no, but I, like I said, I'm a libertarian. When it comes to the criminal justice system, I mean, socially and all the other things, I'm conservative, but when it comes to... I, what's even more, I, I'm the most conservative because I believe in the Constitution. I mean, right. I am an original intent person. I mean, I really believe that whatever was around 200 years ago, as far as criminal justice and all that, should still be... Um, mm-hmm adhered to but um yeah so i yeah it, it's just it, it hasn't changed i mean we had I, I 
I follow this organization called FAM, Families Against Minimum Mandatory. It's a great, great organization. We're hoping to get them on this show. Well, yes. I hope you do, because yes. they, um, well, their chapter guys, like in Gainesville, isn't he, or something like that? Or, uh, I'm not sure. They didn't yeah. give me that much information. There are, <laughs> there's a, yeah, well, they follow different states. Um, they, they, it's a, they're actually based out of D.C., but I think they have... And they're Tenured. called Families Against Mandatory Minimums, F-A-M-M. Oh, Minimum Mandatory, yeah. F-A-M-M. Yeah, and they're wonderful. And if you look at their website, they'll track every state, not every state, but a lot of states. Florida's one of them. And they'll, they'll track bills. And they tracked the 2019 or 2020. I guess it would be 2019 because I was running the 20. Yeah, they tracked the 2019. No, the 2020, the March 2020 bills. And I think there were approximately like 10 criminal reform type bills that would have some sort of impact on lessening uh, the law as it is now. And all 10 of them got killed in uh, committee, Republican-controlled committees. And I'm a Republican, and I'm ashamed to say that it was the Republicans that basically let these things die in committee. But, you know, I mean, I think both both parties are guilty of it. I'm hoping now that the Democrats are completely in control of the federal system, that now we will see ma major criminal reform in the federal system. I mean, I know we had the First Step Act that Trump signed, which I was very proud of him for signing that, and both Democrats and Republicans changed that. That got rid of the three-strike law. And right. got rid of some minimum mandatories there, gave better gain time. I think there were 3,000 inmates released in one day because of the First Step Act. Right. And then right before COVID, they were set to begin the Second Step Act and begin um, even more reform, and then COVID took over and then that got put on the back burner. But I'm hoping that President Biden and, and you know the Senate and the House will pass something that's going to get rid of, I mean, I'm talking major right. reform. And I'm, right. you know. What would you do in the state attorney's office? What would you change? Well, they've given, it's, the, the legislature has given the state attorney the King's Acts. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. I mean, 43 judges, not one of them can waive minimum mandatories, but that one person. But, um, you know, it's, it's something that needs to be done on a, um, it needs to be done on a statewide basis. And I was hoping to make this circuit kind of a, uh, a beacon, you know, in a, in a representative uh, circuit to show that you can waive minimum mandatories. If the legislature is going to give me the discretion, by God, I'm going to use my discretion. And I wouldn't be opposed to waiving minimum mandatories in every case and just giving all the discretion back to the judges. I'm not saying be soft on crime. People think just because you're soft on, or just because you're against minimum mandatories and sentencing guidelines that somehow you're soft on crime. And that's not it at all. I'm, I love our Constitution. Right. And I think it, it's very disrespectful to just go in there and, and rework the checks and balances of our forefathers and just give all this discretion that was once with the judicial branch and give it all to the executive branch and you basically just made the judicial branch a rubber stamp for the executive branch. And I would do that. Um, I would get rid of, I, I've said this in the campaign, I would disband the drug unit and create, you know, if they've got limited resources and I would reprioritize the type of cases that I would go for and first of all I would <laughs> Victimless nonviolent offenses would be at the bottom of my list. Mm -hmm. So trafficking and possession and all that stuff, I mean, it, it might be, I mean, I'll still address it, but it would not be a priority over uh, 
business people who are ripped off by partners or ripped off by employees or elderly people who are ripped off by caretakers. Those are all victim crimes and those need to take precedent over victimless nonviolent drug cases so we need exploitation of elderly and other circuits have it. And that was one of the things I was going to do here locally but I promise you my main goal was to just use this as a platform to get to Tallahassee and as a Republican, look at these other Republicans in these subcommittees that killed all these last 10 bills last March and look them in the eye and say, you know, do you understand? You guys all talk about how much you love the Constitution, you love our forefathers, you don't want judges legislating from the bench. Do you not see the big picture of what you're doing here? You're right. just basically telling all these judges in this state that you're incompetent. You're all a bunch of incompetent people who can't make wise and rational sentencing decisions. And it's, it's wrong. Right. And uh, so that's what I would do and just use it as a lobbying position. So maybe I'll do something. That, I don't know. But no, my intent is now to, I'm still going to do it. Yeah. COVID really kind of screwed me up. And I'm going to do all the reasons why. But as a whole, things have got to change. And somebody's got to right. take the point. So I figured I'd take the point if nobody else is going to. And, just try it, see what happens. I mean, if I stipulate the jury nullification, you know, that's <laughs> going to get some attention. You know? right, <laughs> and yeah. and uh, if we start waiving minimum mandatories and giving the discretion back to the judges and stuff like that, I mean, that, that's what really needs to happen. Right. You know, and get off this war on drugs stuff. It's just, it's ridiculous. Right. You know. So as um, a defense attorney, I think people have this vision that defense attorneys purpose is to get somebody off or to help them escape accountability or they kind of see them as that. What do you see your role as, as a defense attorney? My next to, well, Jesus is my hero. And then <laughs> next to him is George Washington. And then after George Washington is John Adams. And John Adams was our first vice president to George Washington. And he was our second president. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but John Adams, is he was an attorney, and he was the guy who represented the English soldiers for the Boston Massacre. And I don't know if you remember how the Boston Massacre went down, but there was all these, the, um, these intolerable acts, all these things were going on against the colonists, and things, tension grew, and things broke out, and the English soldiers shot and killed five or six of the uh, colonists, and they were charged with murder or manslaughter. And so none of the colonial attorneys would represent um, the English soldiers because they all hated them. And yeah, John Adams was our second president. Or I'm sorry, second president. He was the first vice president to uh, George Washington. And anyway, in the Boston Massacre, when the English soldiers shot the colonists, um, nobody would represent the English soldiers. None of the colonial attorneys would because it was politically not correct. And um, But he believes so much in fundamental fairness that um, he believes everybody is entitled to a fair trial, no matter who you are, no how bad you are, you're entitled to a fair trial. And, um, and he Weird. defended him. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So he, um, he defended him and got most of them acquitted. A couple of them got reduced charges, but for the most part, he got them all acquitted. And um, so he was not well liked as a result of that because, again, he was a patriot. He was part of the underground movement of the Sons of Liberty to, to do the, have, have the whole revolution. His cousin, Sam Adams, was livid with him for representing the British soldiers, but he did it because he just believes that much in fundamental fairness. And he was later quoted as saying that when it comes to you know, criminal justice, it's more important that we protect 
innocence than prosecute guilt. Because when innocent people can be convicted and imprisoned for innocent conduct, for something they didn't even do, then what's the sense in living an innocent life? When you could still be jailed for living an innocent life. So mm -hmm. we've got to make sure that innocent people aren't prosecuted. Thomas Jefferson, you know, he took that one further. And I even mention this in my jury, uh, my voir dires all the time. I always ask jurors, you know, which is a worse scenario for an innocent person to go to jail or a guilty person to go free? And uh, fortunately, nine out of 10 will say it's worse for an innocent person to go to jail. And then I'll ask him, well, how do you feel about Thomas Jefferson's statement? He was quoting Voltaire, but Thomas Jefferson said it's better to let 99 guilty people go free than convict one innocent person when they were framing our Constitution. And um, I mean, that's how extreme he was in trying to build our safeguards for people accused of crimes. He would rather see 99 guilty people walk than, God forbid, one innocent person mm -hmm. ever be convicted. Right. And we're not there anymore. No. I mean, we're, we're, we, you know, you get arrested on a domestic, you're put on probation before, through pretrial release. I mean, you can call it what you want. Mm -hmm. Walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. It's probation. <laughs> mm -hmm. So they put you on probation. It's even more onerous than probation because you got to report once a week instead of once a month if you're on probation. And, um, you know, just this, this mentality of really protecting people's rights so that innocent people aren't being convicted of crimes seems to have gone by the wayside. Um, you know, minimum mandatories are a clear example. I mean, it's just, I don't think a lot of times, well, I won't get into that, but I mean, I just think there's a lot of innocent people who are um, convicted who caught pleas who are really innocent because mm -hmm. they just don't want to risk going to trial and being found guilty. I always equate it to Russian roulette, especially people charged with cap sex batteries. I mean, I, I've got a three-year-old little girl, and if I don't, you know, let's say I don't like, you know, somebody, and I just, ah, Joe, you know, Joe Schmo, whatever, I don't like you anymore, so I'm going to accuse you of coming into my house one day at a party and doing something to my three-year-old little girl. I walked in and caught him doing this. It's my word against his. Mm -hmm. That's a life felony allegation. And if the state attorney prosecutes that, you know, then this Joe, Joe Schmo is faced with a decision of, do I go to trial? I'll probably win, but if I lose, I'm gonna get life in prison. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I equate it to Russian roulette. Um, you know what that is, where you get, you, know, you get a revolver, you put one bullet in the chamber, <laughs> everything else is empty, you hold it to your head, and you pull the trigger, you're probably going to win. You know, five and six are empty. Five and six chambers do not have a bullet. So 85% chance you're going to win this. Mm -hmm. But would you ever play Russian roulette for a million bucks? I wouldn't. I don't think anybody would. Mm -hmm. But yet when these people are charged with these accusations, no confessions, no uh, physical evidence, just an accusation, and it happens. These people are charged... And even though they'll probably win, because, you know, Dempsey's a nut, he's just mad at me because I owe him, you know, I didn't pay up on mm -hmm. my Super Bowl bet or whatever, so he's decided to accuse me of something. And so I get, you know, I'm, now this Joe Schmo is faced with, I'll probably win if I go to trial, but am I going to roll the dice and go to trial, even though 85% chance I'll win because Dempsey's a nut, but if I lose, it's life. Right, right. It's like, just like Russian roulette, it costs you so your scary. life if you lose, and yet that's right. what happens. So what happens is these people are given the, uh, the carrot of, well, we'll offer you probation, sex offender, whatever, probation. Right. But if you 
if you go to trial and lose, you're going to get life. The judge has no discretion. So do you want to take probation? And it happens all the time. Look on the sex offender registry. There's a lot of people convicted mm -hmm. of um, capital offenses that are on probation. I mean, it, it's it, to me, it's... You know, I just think everybody should go to, have the ability to go to trial. If you say you didn't do it, go to trial. But give the judge the ability, give the judge the final say-so. So even if you are found guilty, let the judge hear the mitigators. Let them hear about your life story. Let them hear what's going on in your life. Let them hear about Dempsey's a nut and he owed me money for the Super Bowl. Or I owed him money for the Super Bowl. Whatever. I mean, whatever the mitigators are. And then there's, I don't think most judges enjoy putting people in prison for life. Maybe they would give them five years in prison or something like that, or less or more, or who knows, but at least it would be after it's well thought out mm -hmm. and evaluated by the judge. They sat through the trial, they heard all the evidence, now you have a sentencing hearing and he hears even more evidence and mitigators. You don't have that with minimum mandatories. You know, guilty, gone. That's it. Right. That's the only mm -hmm. thing that happens, and that's too much of a risk for most people to take. Right. And I, I just, I, I think minimum mandatories are an abomination to... Do you, what do you think the percentage of cases that you've had have gone to trial? Small I've had, percentage? Yeah, I mean, I've had, I think, I, I think I've got like over 130 in my 30-some years of doing this stuff. Right. I mean, what do you need, 20 to be board certified? Jury trials, I think you need 20 right. to be board 20, certified. 25. Yeah, 25, that those, five of those could be non-jury. Um, anyway, I do think more cases should be resolved by um, juries. If the prosecutors would just waive minimum mandatories, mm -hmm. I think there'd be a lot more trials. Right. A lot of people are just afraid of because the judges don't have the last say anymore. Yeah, I know a lot of people will take a plea to to get out of jail because they can't afford cash bonds and stuff like that. It reminds me of that. Um, how do you feel about those? <laughs> Okay, now we're going on this rabbit trail. Yeah, that 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 really bothers me. Um, I see it a lot in county and circuit court. So what happens is the person's in custody; they can't afford bail, so they're given the the ultimatum: if you admit you did it, admit you're a criminal and you did this, we're going to let you out. But if you maintain your innocence and say you didn't do it, we're going to keep you in jail. And right now, it could be forever because yeah. of COVID. So where where is the law? So yes, I did it. I'm you know I robbed all these banks. I did all these terrible things. I did it. I did it. Okay, you're gonna let me out. Great. Right. I'm gonna go. But if I I didn't do it, I'm innocent. I, they're gonna make you sit in jail. And I thought that right. pleas were supposed to be uncoerced. Mm -hmm. What more coercive way to get somebody to plea than to imprison them until they say they did it? Right. As a defense attorney. Have you represented people that you know are guilty, and what is that like? No, they're most of them are. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> Especially when they're checks filed, so I'm kidding. No. <laughs> but no, I mean, but it's not. It's okay. So somebody's guilty, then the issue becomes really the guilt or innocence doesn't even bother me so much as did the police do the right thing? If there's one thing I hate worse mm -hmm. than a criminal is a lying cop. Okay, or cops who just think the ends justifies the means. So as long as we got the bad guy, it doesn't matter if we violated his rights by going into his house or on his property mm -hmm. or stopping him without PC or whatever, or mm -hmm. reasonable suspicion. I mean, I, I think it's more important that we do things the way our forefathers intended it than representing criminals. I mean, Thomas Jefferson said it's better to let 99 guilty go free than convicted an innocent person. So if I'm representing 
99 guilty people and getting them off, then so be it, because mm -hmm. that's what Thomas Jefferson envisioned. I mean, we're really supposed mm -hmm. to be more focused on making sure innocent people are not being prosecuted. And I'm telling you, this it, it, it seems like more and more cases are being prosecuted that really shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's, there's less compassion in the system. There's not enough. When I was prosecuting, we had G, G3 of arrest sufficient. Okay, you arrested them, let them go, drop it. Now, it's like they have to get something out of everything. You can't just um, drop a case. It, it, somehow, back when I was a prosecutor, when I was in felony and then doing felony intake, and I'd have people ask me, because that was like the buzz, you know, your stats, your, you know, who's got the highest conviction rate, and they're always worried about stats. I used to tell people, God forbid we ever get to a 100% conviction rate because the system, it's, an, it's terrible because it's, the system is not 100% perfect. And when you're striving for 100% conviction rate in an imperfect system, that means innocent people are going to jail or being prosecuted that don't deserve it. A lot of people are innocent and a lot of people just plain out don't deserve to be prosecuted, but yet that's what they, they do it in the name of stats. And when I was a prosecutor, I'd always tell, I signed no process on I would sign for other prosecutors. I didn't care because that, that, even back in 93, offended me so much that they were so focused on stats. And I used to always tell them, I hope to God I have the lowest conviction rate in the state mm -hmm. because that means, you know, <laughs> that I, there are people who I've dropped cases on that didn't deserve to be prosecuted, either because they weren't guilty or they deserved um, the uh, compassion of the state. And it, 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 to this day, I mean, they keep track, they keep stats on all the felonies, and I, I just I don't think that's right. I don't either. It almost gives an incentive for um, prosecutors, even when they know a case isn't good or they may not be able to prove it at trial at that point, that's when they give that really hard-to-decline plea offer, you know, like, oh, we'll give you a 30-day sentence to jail, you've already served 30 days, so essentially you're just signing a piece of paper to get out of jail. Yeah. Um, you know, like we just touched on, and um, that way the prosecutor gets their conviction rate. Yep. And not justice. <laughs> and, and what happens, and it's not the individual assistant state attorneys. Most of them, I think, deep down, they're good, mostly they're good people. And deep down, I think they realize this should be dropped, but I think there's a fear that they may get reprimanded or fired even if they get too many no crosses out. Or they, so you know, crazy. Yeah, and... When I started out in 1990, um, Boyles' theory was, and he ran it in the land office here when I was in county court, and he always said, do whatever you want to do on a case. Just always have a good reason. Don't embarrass the office. Don't prosecute somebody because you got in a fist fight with him when you were in high school, but don't drop anything because that's your second cousin's best friend or something mm -hmm. like that. Just all whatever you do on a case, just have a good reason. In the office always supported me on whatever I did. If it was a domestic case and it was clear that the victim was wanting this used for leverage in a in a divorce case and there really wasn't any evidence of credible evidence, you know mm -hmm. it was gonna lose if you went to trial, then why waste everybody's time? Why waste jurors' time when you know it's gonna be another kill? You just drop mm -hmm. the thing. And and the office was really good back then. They would talk to the assistant before the victim would come in to complain. In my desk I had a second drawer on the right side of my desk, and I used to call it my floater files. And I told my secretary that if I'm ever found floating down the St. John's River dead, there's your top 100 suspects. And they, were, <laughs> and they were victims who were mad at me because I didn't file on their case. I dropped it. But I just, I was always encouraged to do what was right. 
and I'm sure my stats were probably lower than a lot of the current stats today, but I could sleep at night knowing I wasn't prosecuting somebody just for my own stats, my own self-promotion, mm -hmm. right. you know. And there's been battery cases too where, you know, it's a sibling, sibling argument and brother knocks plate out of sister's hand and because you've caused an unwanted, you know, touching towards somebody else that's a battery. I saw yeah. one where a girl threw a piece of pizza at her dad and got a battery charge. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Really, it, a piece of pizza? <laughs> and I wonder how the officer felt when he did that. I mean, I wonder if he really <laughs> felt it should be an arrest and, he, you know, or is this like something, okay, I've got to make an arrest over mm -hmm. a piece of pizza. And, uh, so and it, it seems like they're losing discretion not only in prosecutors, state attorney, district attorney offices, but also with law enforcement too. It seems like the discretion keeps getting narrower and narrower. Well, because the rhetoric, the political rhetoric, I mean, nobody likes domestic violence. we got domestic violence awareness, whatever, and shelters and all, and they're all needed and they're all warranted. But unfortunately, what gets caught up in the rhetoric is innocent people and people who don't deserve to be prosecuted, even though... Their name, their case might technically fall under a domestic violence scenario. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, it, it really doesn't. It shouldn't go there. And you know, it, it, I just I feel I like see a it. lot of things are designed for people to fail. Like even mm -hmm. probation. Like the whole thought of probation, I just think is so ridiculous on its own. Like it's designed for them to fail and yeah. go back to jail. Well, because they're so. I mean, the the the. Society as a whole looks at sex offenders as just the dirt of the earth. I mean, they're just mm -hmm. below scum. And, you know, maybe because I've represented some of them, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of innocent people caught up in that net. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of them out there that I don't think pose one bit of danger. To right, there's a lot of things whatsoever. you can be a sex offender for that aren't necessarily, like, scary crimes. Right, like. right. And, and when you get to know them, I mean, there's... I mean, I've prosecuted them, too. I mean, I've, I've been on both sides of the fence. And, um, I mean, I, there, there's a lot of them that just I don't think would ever harm a child and I don't think mm -hmm. they'd pose a danger. But yet they've got them on so many onerous restrictions. They give, you know, The state gives them probation for allegedly you know, molesting a child or having child pornography or traveling to meet a child. And they give them probation for that. But yet, let's say they forget to register their car on their birthday or they mm -hmm. miss a reporting date. Then they send them to prison, not for molesting a child, but because you forgot to tell them about your new tag on your car or something mm -hmm. like that. I mean, you know, it, it's, it, it sets them up to fail. And, um, you know, that's a sticky wicket. I mean, I don't know how you handle it. I'm not clairvoyant. I don't know who's mm -hmm. guilty and who isn't. But, um, and it's obviously a sensitive subject, and nobody mm -hmm. wants to see that in society, obviously. But um, just, I don't know. I, I just feel like with minimum mandatories, and the, the big, big axe over their head and weighing whether to go to trial or not mm -hmm. is just such a deterrent to people going to trial and having their day in court. I think there's a lot of people who would go to trial and roll the dice if it wasn't a guaranteed life in prison right. sentence. Right. And we're talking about a lifetime of getting beat up by the guards, beat up mm -hmm. by the inmates, raped by the inmates, whatever this perception is of what happens in prison that's what they perceive for the rest of their life so they're mm -hmm. like i'm not i'm not it's too much to risk so they they take a plea and uh, right. they should still have that one safety net i mean we're supposed to be full of these checks and balances and all these safety nets to make sure innocent people don't get sent away but the big one the judicial discretion is gone all because of these legislators none of them who are lawyers they're all plumbers dentists cpas mm -hmm. account whatever 
up in Tallahassee, and somehow they know more about real world and life and law than our elected judges, which right. blows my mind. Right. There's just they, the second look legislation though is the main thing. I mean, some of these judges, I've I've heard really horrific tales of people getting massive, massive prison sentences for even victimless crimes. And right. it, it just needs to change. I know that in other countries, other first world countries, the way that they set up their prison systems, someone will go in for a crime and first of all, they're not given anywhere near the amount of prison that we assign here in the United States, but they'll go in and within their first couple of days, they're meeting with a psychiatrist, they're meeting with a case manager to see, okay, this was your crime, this is where we need to get you before you can be released. Here's your treatment plan on whatever your issues are. And they go through this plan. Their prison cells are similar to apartments. And they're kind of gradually released back. They're not dumped back into society. Because I know we don't really have transition programs here in the United States either. But in other countries, it's, okay, what do we need to have you accomplish before we're okay letting you back out of society? And whatever it is, is accomplished in a pretty short amount of time. So. Yeah, it's, it, I've always said nobody's as bad as the worst thing they've done. And, you know, when these people, there's a lot of good people that go through the system every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, good yeah, people. Right. I've had drug traffickers at my house, you mm -hmm. know, um, clients of mine who got released and they were waiting for somebody to pick them up. So I was like, yeah, come over and, you know, I, I mean, I... I have them in my office. I, I, you know, I, and you're not murdered. And I'm not murdered, yeah. And, um, I, I just, uh, you know, and I, I think that's the problem with a lot of these, and I hate, but a lot of these judges who are career prosecutors who get appointed to judgeships, they've never had the benefit of getting to know these people. You know, when you're a prosecutor, you only look at these people from across the aisle and what mm -hmm. you read in the file, and you never get to know them or their families. And really, this, this, you know, what's going on behind closed doors. Right. Like everybody has issues in their life and they have their childhood issues they've dealt with. I mean, they're all human beings, you know, and, you know, you just can't look at them as... And everybody makes numbers. mistakes. Yeah. Like, you most know. prosecutors, I'm sure, have broken the law at some point. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I was, when I was a misdemeanor, was the first thing I would think of, okay, did I commit this crime myself? <laughs> Whether I'm prosecuting somebody, is okay, did I do this myself? Did I, you know, drunk driving? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not mm -hmm. here to confess, but I'm just saying, you know, I went to college mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah. and it can happen so easily to people, especially when there's no accident. I mean, you get pulled over for mm -hmm. a tag light out. Right. They'll give you a diversion, so you do certain things and they drop charges. You think there should be more diversion programs in general? Yes. When they're not able to drop charges. I, I'm, I'm, first of all, I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I believe a lot more cases should just be flat out dropped mm -hmm. and there should be no shame in that. And then, yeah, diversions for people need to be cut a break. You know, mm -hmm. they need their, they should pay a pound of flesh mm -hmm. for it, but they don't need to have the conviction stigma that goes right. with it, especially nowadays. I get people all the time that are like, this case was dropped, but they, they keep, I can't get this job because I have a felony arrest. And I'm like, well, yeah. Yeah. Like, well, they don't tell you that part. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, so. it's, um, and you know, with uh, I think there's more, uh, deportation going on. I mean, I think the the type of offenses that you have can cause you to be deported mm -hmm. more easily nowadays. And it's just right. just an mm -hmm. allegation nowadays can be enough to, to really jam you up. Ruin your life, basically. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what's funny is um, 
this was back when I was a prosecutor. I'll never forget this. It was Judge McDermott, who was a county judge here back in the day. Judge McDermott was ROR-ing. They did one of those stings, the reverse sales, where the police were on the street acting like they were drug dealers, and then they would arrest every, you know, everybody who came up to try and buy drugs. And Judge McDermott was ROR-ing every case. And I asked the judge, I said, Judge, why are you ROR-ing all these people when, um, you know, they're charged with this attempted purchase? He goes, it was bad enough that we've got drug dealers out there selling drugs on the street. Now we got cops out there selling drugs on the street. Because right. <laughs> I'm not going to put up with it. Right. And uh, so I was like, okay, Judge. And it was pretty, uh, pretty astute. And yeah. really, what kind of criminal are you getting off the street? when you get a crackhead that bought a five dollar crack rock like really and you didn't even give them real crack exactly <laughs> so you took their five dollars you gave them fake crack and you arrested them and gave them a felony i mean if yeah i mean who what why does society care i mean who cares if somebody was buying a they're gonna ingest a five dollar piece of crack who cares right. i mean i don't understand why they're putting putting all that emphasis on that but yet you know these these contracting frauds and all these other types of cases that are prevalent, they don't do anything about that. They just go after these little $5 drug users. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it's just, that's why I want to run again. I, I really think it needs to be reprioritized. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you can't legislate morality. You can't, you're not going to make these people better people by making them criminals. Right. I mean, the, <laughs> all you're doing is giving them criminal records and taking their driver's licenses away from them, they're on probation, then they can't comply with probation, then they get jailed, and then their whole life's a wreck right. over something that who cares about to begin with. And these mm -hmm. people still have families and whatnot, too, yeah. who are suffering while their loved ones are in and out of the system because they may not be able to conform with probation or drug testing or, or uh, you know, some people will say, they just can't quite get it, you know, and it's... And who are we to the Like, I... Gambling is bad. Um, uh, fatty foods, McDonald's is bad. Um, what else? Alcohol is bad. I mean, we the cigarettes are bad. Chewing tobacco is bad. Are we going to make everything illegal that's bad for you in this country? I mean, I, I thought my body, my choice. I thought that you know what you do in the privacy of your own home is your own business. So if I want to put cocaine in my body, or I want to put tequila in my body, or if I want to eat paint chips, or I want to eat Big Macs. <laughs> Who cares? Right. You can't make everything illegal for, you know, you can't legislate morality. Yeah, right. That money could be invested in such better ways to actually help people who are who are ready to get treatment for addiction and who are who are struggling instead of just throwing them in jail. Um, Look at the government with gambling. I mean, I know I touched on that. Here's, here they are. We can't play poker. We can't break out a deck of cards right now and put $21 in the center of this desk and play a game of cards and we get raided. But yet, they can run a billion-dollar gambling operation under the name of the lotto and power because mm -hmm. it's all for the children. They hide behind the children, <laughs> you know. And so they can validate this billion-dollar gambling operation. They don't care if people go into the 7-Eleven and spend an entire paycheck on mm -hmm. scratch-offs and Powerball. That's okay. But don't you dare spend $21 on a card game amongst friends. You know, it, it's just, I, I can't stand when the government tries to legislate what you should and shouldn't do mm -hmm. with your own stuff or your own body. And that's just, this whole war on drugs is just, 
It's bad. And like I, we I'm, passed the trillion dollar spending point on the war on drugs too since it began a couple of years ago. I think we passed a trillion dollars yeah, that we spent. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and that could go to so many other places. You just spend a trillion dollars on treatment. Right. You know, and... Um, yeah, rehab everywhere. It was funny. Is Ron, you know, George Schultz was, uh, I think he was Secretary of State under uh, President Reagan, and he was in favor of legalizing all drugs too. Um, so it's not, you know, you don't have to be an uber-liberal to think that legalization of drugs is the right mm -hmm. thing. I mean, there's a lot of conservatives, definitely the libertarians, but a lot of people I think would surprise, you'd be surprised. I even think Trump would have gone along with it at some point. I think he had a lot of liberal, libertarian tendencies when it came to criminal reform. Because um, I, I was very impressed with the First Step Act. And I, I just, I really hope this current federal government can just undo the whole minimum mandatory system mm -hmm. and just get us back to where we were before the 80s. Right. I hope so too. And I do yeah. think he did just sign that we're no, he's no longer going to be continuing any contracts with uh, private prisons. Oh, good. So. That's, um, there is one. Definitely. I mean, he can't do it statewide. But. Right. But I think there's one company, I mean, please don't quote me on this, but I thought I'd heard somewhere that like 40% of our prisons don't have air conditioning. Something like it. that. The it. food I've heard is terrible. There was one company, I won't say who, but I, I thought I came across this in my research when I was running, but there was like a, they got a billion dollars from Florida or something to run the private prisons, and their profit margin was $250 million. Like it was 25% profit margin. I, and, that's, it, and that's the problem is you, the way that prisons are right now is it's set up like a business. Yes. And if you look at the owners of the private prisons across the country, they're generally all the same company or the products that go to prison. It's all the same company, yeah. right? And so, and then you have, um, and it's sad, because, and I won't say the name of the company because I don't know if I'll get in any trouble for that, but there is a company that I used to love shopping at, hmm. and I discovered they were the number one profiter off prison labor. So the problem comes when you have a lobbyist who there's an incentive for people to be in prison, that's an issue. Yep. And what's, what stinks is that, uh, from what I heard in this one, they made, out of the billion dollars, they made $250 million of profit. And again, being a conservative, I'm a capitalist and a business person, <laughs> I, I think, not, you asked me 99 times out of 100, that the private sector could always run something better than the government. Okay, But this is the one area where I believe that it's truly better for the government to run the prison system than private sectors because when your widget that you're dealing with is a human being, right. you know, then you can't worry about cutting costs and saving money. They feed them trash. My understanding is they feed them really trashy food. Again, I heard, I want to say 40% is that number sticks in my head, but many, many prisons don't have air conditioning in Florida. They don't give them the vocational training before they get back into society so they right. can actually have a, a skill that they can mm -hmm. you know, make money at when they get back in. They don't have to go back to committing crimes. And they don't. They, instead, they just pocket that 250 million, and then they lobby and say, "Oh, we need more people. Raise minimum mandatories. Raise this. We need more Tough people in crime, prisons. More crimes, Tough on crime. Yeah. Penalties. We, instead of 833 per hundred thousand, let's go for 933 per hundred thousand. Let's get more people in there, and then that increases their profits. And you know, it's a vicious circle. And who pays for it but the inmates? Because they're just treated basically as cattle, and they're not given decent. Uh, accommodations. I mean, they're still God's creatures. They're still mm -hmm. somebody's child. I mean, these are, these are human beings that we're talking about, not mm -hmm. 
like I said, not products or widgets or anything. And it's just, it's wrong. And that's another thing I wanted to kind of do as state attorney is get up. I just wanted a, a stepping stone or a platform to stand from mm -hmm. to just go to Tallahassee and say, hey, I'm a Republican. I'm one of y'all. And I'm the state attorney. I'm the guy you want to give all the power to and all the discretion. And I want to give it back mm -hmm. to where it belongs, to where it was intended to be. And, you know, just give back some of the power. You know, when George Washington walked away, he could have been a king. He could have been there for life. You know, George Washington, that's why I really revere that guy. I mean, he could have been king for the rest of his life. He could have been the most powerful person in the world. That's the first time, and I believe, in history where there was a peaceful change in power. He set the precedent for two-term limits. And he could have been a third-term president or a fourth-term president, but he said, no, we need to give back the power, we need to give it back to the people. You know, he was one that was not power-hungry, and he really didn't want to be president, but he did it because he felt, I guess he had to. But, I mean, and that's where we got to get back to, like, the state attorneys and these um, people who have been given all this power, they need to give it back to the judges and go back to the original intent. And we got to get off this war on crime, and, or this war on drugs, I mean, and just, you know, let people be people. And, you know, big Brother has got to go away. You know, it, it's bad. If the listeners come away with one, one thing that you really want them to focus on, um, what would it be? <laughs> what, do you, what is the number one thing you think needs change? I think I know. But. Well, the, the reform. I mean, there's, yeah. Just, yeah, there's just so much. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. criminal reform is such a buzzword, and justice reform and all that, but there's so many, I mean, sentencing guidelines, minimum mandatories, just... Right, one word, stay in school, don't do drugs. That's All right, the, uh, hey, you did work for Reagan. The, 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 the Darabuzz yeah, slogan there. But, nah, it's, I just appreciate y'all having me and actually considering what I have to say. I mean, yeah, <laughs> thank, thank you so much. Thank you for your time with us. We will yeah. see you on the next episode and we will talk about justice. All editing for Gin and Justice done Gin by Gin and Justice Podcast. Artwork by Justin Cardone. Photography by Kimber Schwakey. We'll see you next time on Gin and Justice.